Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast, coronavirus continues to disrupt the usually sublime functions of Earth. Thousands of businesses have closed their doors, tens of thousands of everyday Americans have been laid off, and stock markets around the world continue to drop considerably. As Washington tries to fix the problems with stimulus packages and purported bipartisanship, millions of Americans are struggling as a result of COVID-19. So what should or could the two parties put first? Efficiency in the hope of helping every affected American, or viability in hope of pushing their respective agendas? Where does the line get drawn between the 1% brawling on Capitol Hill and the other 99% of everyday Americans who are losing their jobs? Also, President Trump's conduct so far has been particularly absurd, and we're not even halfway through the week. What is Trump doing? How is he handling coronavirus? And how will all of this pressure upon him and other elites in Washington affect his position in the 2020 presidential race? We'll answer all that and more in episode number 128 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. That's correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. It's episode number 128 of the J. Rorty Podcast. It's Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. We appreciate your listenership. Thank you for being here. We're broadcasting live and recording on the podcast. There is a lot to talk about, and we're going to be pumping out lots of content uh, on this podcast in the coming weeks because of coronavirus. We'll try and uh, uptick the amount of shows we do per week so we can keep you updated on everything happening in the news right now. But before we get to that, I want to just say a couple things I normally do not say, uh, and it's all about programming and programming notes. So I want to remind everyone, actually, for the well, I, I've said it very casually, but formally I'd like to remind everyone that there will be a Jay Doherty podcast Q&A happening on April 2nd, 2020 to commemorate the last or the, the closest to the last scheduled episode of this month. You can submit your questions by emailing comments at j-doherty.com or texting them to 312-625-8492. The number is open 24-7 if you want to do that. I also, second programming note, I recently heard that I've never mentioned my social media on this podcast from someone. So uh, if you wish, please consider following me on Twitter. We talk about the podcast up there, and uh, you'll always be notified immediately when a news story is published on thedohertyfiles.com. And then also, uh, this is very important in my opinion, show notes. So there are multi-page long show notes that are available right now at j-dorty.com. I usually put between like 8 and 10 hours uh, into each episode for show notes for myself and for you uh, into content research and development. And then I also do a bunch of, you know, the formatting, the graphics, the websites, the video, the, the editing the video, editing the audio. So if it makes it a bit easier for you to follow along with the show, I'm going to uh, be posting those show notes on the website as well. So make sure you go there to check them out. You just go to j-story.com slash jdpodcast. All the show notes for each episode and the audio and the promo video will be there for you as well. And then the new thing that I'm doing this week, or well, I uh, just started, that will happen henceforth is the JD Media Network Newsroom page. I found, because I'm constantly changing things or evolving, that I'll have to just sort of mention it on the podcast. I think it's a little bit easier if we consolidate it into one swift and efficient place. You can find that at j-shorty.com slash newsroom. Very exciting announcement that we'll talk more about uh, today for the JD Media Network later on in the show. But we begin with your daily or podcastly coronavirus update. Every day, every time we have a podcast, I'd like to update you on the statistics. So, according to Johns Hopkins 
COVID-19 global cases by the Center for Systems of Science and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins University as of 1.58 p.m. on Tuesday, March 24th. There are 409,014 cases of COVID-19, the majority of being them, uh, the majority of those cases in China, 81,591. Italy, almost 70,000. The United States has taken the third place at 50,000. In terms of total deaths, Italy has the uh, highest amount of deaths by far out of all the countries, including China. Italy has almost 7,000 deaths. China has a little bit over 3,000, and the United States does not even rank in the top five. So that is good news indeed. What's bad news is that the United States now has the third most cases in the world, according to that map. In fact, Forbes over at uh, uh, Laura Begley Bloom over at Forbes, she's a senior contributor, said that with the news that the United States has become the third worst location for coronavirus in the world, it's having profound ramifications in the travel space. On March 22nd, that was uh, Sunday, Japan raised its travel alert for the United States to a level two, one being the best, four being the worst, with the Japanese foreign ministry announcing that its citizens should not go to the United States unless it is essential. Japan currently has just over 1,000 cases of COVID-19 compared to the United States, which has about 50,000 right now. That's all from fabulous reporting in Forbes by Laura Begley Bloom. Very interesting stuff that's happening right now in the entire world. Something I found actually super interesting from the Washington Post, Chris Mooney, Sarah Kaplan, and Minju Kim said that there's that uh, more men are dying as a result of coronavirus than women. They say nowhere is this trend more pronounced than in Italy. Men make up nearly 60% of people with confirmed cases of the virus and more than 70% of those who, uh, who have died of COVID-19, according to the country's main public health research agency. Deborah Burks, who's one of the top people, most trustworthy, I would say, in the terms of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, <laughs> warned Friday that, quote, from Italy, we're seeing another uh, concerning trend that the mo- mortality rates in males seem to be twice in every age group of females, that this should alert us all to continue our vigilance to protect Americans who are in nursing homes. Very true. Let's talk about the cause of and the solution to what seems to be the cause of and the solution to all of these problems. The source of the problem continues to be the problem in many ways, and the source of the problem that I speak of is China. In an article published in The Federalist yesterday, which I know happens to be incredibly biased to the right, fully aware of the the subjectivity that could occur, I just selected this one because I thought Helen Rayleigh, who is a senior contributor and also happens to be a Chinese immigrant, shed light on a greatly unspoken timeline by going through how and when China knew about this virus when it started in the fall of last year, and then how they dealt with it when they when officials first knew about it, government officials. And it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, disconcerting to say the least. When Chinese doctors went to inform their own government about what they'd found, which is a SARS-like virus, something that we've seen years before, they were reprimanded by Wuhan police for quote-unquote spreading rumors, according to this article by Helen Rayleigh, written yesterday in The Federalist. She writes, By December 27th, the central government's health officials were informed of a new coronavirus that was causing illness. Wuhan had 180 confirmed cases, yet Beijing waited until December 30th to notify the World Health Organization's China office and did nothing to inform the Chinese people. The important part of this is that on the same day when early whistleblowers, including 
two doctors. They tried to inform their colleagues in social circles about a suspicious new SARS-like virus, and they were reprimanded by Wuhan police. So China tried to shut this down before it could get even bigger, and there's lots of articles that give this timeline. It's not just the Federalist. I just thought that uh, Ms. Raley's perspective, being a Chinese immigrant and having firsthand experience of the way this actually works, being in China, I thought that the subjectivity that she provided was very unique. And most of the data that she's actually reporting came from the South China Morning Post, which has sort of been the Chinese-based informant for the American public. Uh, Moving along in the more recent but still distant days of the beginning of the virus, China actually acknowledged its existence internally as being something that may have spread from like a fish market, as described in a separate timeline written by Forbes. And this is really where you you get into the nitty-gritty of the source of this virus. Elizabeth Breyer over at uh, Forbes says that on New Year's Day was really when this thing, uh, when China started to internally at least acknowledge it. She writes, Chinese health authorities uh, closed the the Wunan seafood wholesale market after it is determined that animals sold sold there may be the source of the virus. Though it primarily sold fish and sellfish, it also offered wild game like beavers, snakes, bats, and porcupines to eat. So, very disconcerting there. And that was at the, that was New Year's Day in the American calendar, in the Gregorian calendar. Five days later, China actually began to acknowledge publicly that this thing could be a threat. They said that they had discovered an unknown pneumonia cases that are not SARS-like or MERS-like, which are the severe acute respiratory syndrome and the Middle East respiratory syndrome that have affected many, many people throughout the world in the past couple of years. It took them a while, and to, well, it took the world a while to really recognize this as a ginormous threat. In fact, you know, socially, this wasn't really even talked about too extensively until mid-February or early March, again, all this stuff that I'm talking about here happened on New Year's Day. So it took a while to sort of, there was a seven, or a multi-week delay to get to the United States, at least socially. But on January 30th was when it got a lot of attention because the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a global health emergency. The State Department of the United States also issued a travel advisory warning Americans not to travel to China. Uh, They set the the advisory at level four, reflecting its highest alert. Private industry also started to jump in there, and over time, there were more aggressive actions being taken by both private and public industry to sort of mitigate this virus or the potential economic effects that could have on their businesses. Now, this is believed to be the cause of the virus, this fish market, this wild animal market. That's what people are saying right now. I mean, there's tons of theories going on as to where this thing actually originated, but the United States CDC, Centers for Disease Control, seems to be going along with the idea that this did indeed come from an animal market in China, even though some Trump Senate allies seem to have some other disconcerting justification, a little bit more graphic, illustrating the culture in certain parts of China where things like this Take place. Take Senator John Cornyn, who said this about the virus originating from China. Well, I think China is to blame because the culture where people eat bats and snakes and dogs and things like that, these viruses are transmitted from the animal to the people. And that's why China has been the source of a lot of these viruses like SARS, like MERS, the swine flu, and now the coronavirus. So I think they have a fundamental problem. 
and I don't uh, object to geographically identifying where, where it's coming from. Although, according to The Guardian, who is getting their information from the potentially mendacious Chinese government, as all publications are, China has defeated the COVID-19 virus. Their numbers are dropping rapidly, but, uh, you know, they are still the country with the most cases, about 20,000 more than Italy, which trails them. So I think defeat in this in the, in the use that it is here in this article is much too strong of a word. What, in my opinion, they are referring to is the fact that China hasn't seen any new cases in recent days, which is no sign of victory, in my opinion, even marginal. I mean, I think it is it is progress, but it is not victory. The only victory I would accept is this virus being totally, totally cured, wiped off the planet, or maybe even a vaccine to treat uh, the virus efficaciously, both of which are either in the future or just utopia. So that's sort of interesting. But The Guardian is reporting that, according to official statistics, China has defeated the coronavirus. Over the last five days, health authorities have reported only the uh, only one new locally transmitted case of COVID-19, a patient uh, in one province infected by someone traveling uh, from abroad in Wuhan, the center of the outbreak, uh, the country's worst hit area. Officials on Monday reported a fifth day without new cases. So good progress from the source of the problem. Not sure exactly what's going to happen in the future, and whether or not they're actually lying about their numbers, which has known to be certainly true in the past. Moving over to America, America is taking quite the economic hit. Again, the, the positive and negative, effect, negative effects will hopefully have sort of, or will hopefully prove to be on a delay from China to the United States, assuming China is telling the truth. Although today, I mean, starting right now as I'm recording this at 217, it's been a good day for markets not only in the United States but all around the world. Of course, we're nowhere near, you know, recovering from what we lost in the beginning of this coronavirus. But the Dow Jones is up almost 10 percent. The S&P is up almost 10 percent. The Nasdaq is up, uh, or uh, yeah, the Nasdaq is up uh, almost 8 percent. So we're doing well overall, markets around the world. In fact. Um, there's been great markets around, you know, in Asia, in Europe. The FTSE market in in London was up nine percent. Uh, Germany's up eleven percent. The DAX market over there, and in Asia even uh, doing super well. The Asia Dow is up almost five percent. The Nikkei, which is the Japanese, uh, sorry, the Hang Seng, is up four point four six market, at four point six percent. Um. And the Nikkei 225 is up 7.13%. So it's doing extremely well overall. Of course, we're nowhere near. In fact, if you look at the graphs that are provided very generously by many, many people, particularly over at MarketWatch and at CNN Business, um, five-day recovery looks splendid. <laughs> but one-month recovery, oof, it just looks just a little hill upward from a descending mountain, in my opinion. But... So overall, the United States economy is doing horribly compared to how it was doing in the month before, but today, on a very micro level, it is doing very well. So let's pick up from last week, the last week's economic effects. That's what I like to do. So um, this is what I talked about last week. I talked about some studies. The International Labor, Labor Organization, which is an agency of the United Nations, put out an assessment saying that 25 million jobs could be lost in a worst-case COVID-19 reality overall. Even in the week that we're uh, in right now, and the, again, this report was written last week, meaning the week leading up to this week, it was said that 2 million jobs will be lost or could be lost as a result of coronavirus, according to the balance. Unemployment was already pretty bleak within the first quarter of this year, jumping from 147,000 unemployed to a whopping 273,000 right now. 
So big drops in, in unemployment. Let's say that's only uh, reported unemployment. There are some loopholes that huge evil companies are taking advantage of right now. I don't want to name any names, <clears throat> Marriott. But uh, anyway, everyone is fighting the, the this crisis right now. Uh, in the outbreak, and the, the outbreak is motivating them to actually pass something efficiently. And I'm talking about Congress here, of course. Of course, that failed, in my opinion. Efficiency means like a couple days, maybe at max. Of course, the lead Republican actor in Congress right now is Mitch McConnell, the lead Democrat, Nancy Pelosi. And McConnell is steering the ship when it comes to this entire proposal. We've made some progress. It was said that they were going to have a deal by Monday morning. That didn't work. Said they were going to be Tuesday morning. That didn't work. And so we sit here right now. The government's goal was to get it passed quickly, and they have failed. In fact, Mitch McConnell said the Senate was at warp speed trying to fix this disaster. You may remember this me saying this from last week. In fact, I, I thought this is so funny because they're still apparently moving at warp speed, according to Mitch McConnell. Here's me reacting to Mitch McConnell using that phrase. This this was uh, this aired last week on the Jade Rudy podcast. Participants sounded hopeful about the progress made on the legislation, which was, just, which was introduced only Thursday, so just a couple of days ago. They wanted to get it passed Friday. The process, McConnell remarked, has amounted to warp speed for the Senate. Okay, that's, that's the quote of the year. Warp speed for the Senate is a total oxymoron. Warp speed for the Senate is the equivalent of a snail walking across a highway. That is warp speed for the Senate. Normal speed is a snail trying to, like, trudge across the entire earth. The Senate moves remarkably slowly. Warp speed for the Senate is just like saying, I don't even know. There's not even there's not even a, a metaphor that could encapsulate how much of an oxymoron warp speed for the Senate could be. Okay, so that's the end of that clip. Anyway, moving towards today, we are seeing the stimulus package push through in its warp speed uh, development through the Senate. And the mismanagement of this of this thing has just been horrifyingly remarkable. We'll talk. We'll, we'll first begin with uh, how the Republicans are doing, then how the Democrats are doing. Uh, but over the weekend was really when this progressed. Legislative Affairs Republicans from the White House have been meeting with senior Democrats uh, yesterday and over the weekend. Democrats who ultimately have control over the future of this bill because Nancy Pelosi's signature di- dictates whether or not the president will be able to sign it into the law into law to begin with. So even if Nancy Pelosi, it's very important to remember this because this is sort of ignored in the media. If you know Nancy Pelosi can send this over to the president and the president can reject to sign it. So it's likely that he will sign it just to get something through, but Nancy Pelosi is the key holder here, not Donald Trump. And that's the reason this thing is being halted so intensely right now. That's actually the reason uh, why, if there, if the Republicans had the House, then this would be uh, into action right now. And I'm not saying that this, you know, the Republicans is objectively better. I'm just saying, as a result of politics, this thing would have been implemented faster if the Republicans had control of the House. Before we get into the characters of the story a little bit more in depth, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Schumer, uh, let's go over the bill being proposed. By Republicans, Trump's administration. It's a $1 trillion package, and it's more or less partitioned into four separate cash allocations, from my understanding, according to the U.S. Treasury. In Trump's plan, there would be, it's divided into $500 billion, $300 billion, $50 billion, and $150 billion. The majority, the bulk of that, five, or not the majority, but the bulk, $500 billion would be for cash payments to American taxpayers, up to $1,200 for adults making under 75000 
and for couples making less than 150000 per year, and you get 500 bucks for each child who fits under those same circumstances. Pretty generous, right? $300 billion for small businesses that will be developed or you know pushed towards development. That, that includes any small business less than 500 employees. The Republicans, and this is really where the Democrats are starting to hate this thing, $50 billion in loans and maybe even some bailouts for the airline industry and $150 billion for other sectors, sort of like a, you know, a drizzling fund. And that's really, it's the last two things that that the Democrats have the problem with, and the first two things they have a problem to scale with. So, objectively, I would think the Democrat objections to this bill would be the scale of the first two things, the cash payments to taxpayers and the small businesses, and maybe not even the small businesses, they don't really seem to I mean, the, the, the liberal, the, the new Democratic Party doesn't really seem to care too much about small businesses uh, as compared to the Republicans as much as they advertise to be so. But I think the they are definitely going to want increased uh, cash payments to taxpayers, maybe more for small businesses, definitely not as much for airline industry and other sectors. And that's what they've been pushing. In fact, these numbers and the semantics of the bill relating to these numbers is what Congress, Democrats in Congress, have been fighting over for the last couple of days. But the reality is, in my opinion, that as soon as this bill is signed, people start getting checks regardless of whether or not Democrats or Republicans agree with one another. The interpersonal economy of this nation, not even the stock market, just the, the everyday buying and selling goods, will be jolted as a result of some stimulus package being passed. And Washington can often lose sight of the fact that there are literally people, as I speak right now, struggling to put food on the table because of this virus. And in terms of government intervention, that they, and I'm talking about Washington here, you know, they're the only entity that can do anything about it. Washington is the only, in my opinion right now, especially because almost all private industry is either shut down fully or partly, they're really the, the, the potential saving grace here. And they don't really seem to understand that because they've just been negotiating while people are you know, begging for money and they need it, which is why America as a nation, as represented by trending Twitter hashtags, is pretty angry at the Democratic Party right now simply because they're blocking the bill and they're holding this up. Even Democrats, you know, I mean, I'm talking about not congressional Democrats, but citizens of America who are, who lean left or are registered Democrats are sort of mad. That's what I saw on Twitter yesterday. Uh, and it's only because people who fit in the brackets of this COVID deal have little dollar signs in their eye. They don't care, you know, the partisan divides in the Senate. They just want money, understandably. I mean, $1,200 in, in the, if you fit those brackets sounds pretty nice, right? Going into the official trading week was when this, this and the anticipation for this bill or some, some stimulus package being passed was high because everyone would, in theory, be going back to work or unfortunately being laid off of work which would be a nifty point of entry for the stimulus package, right? But Democrats were stubborn about this bill. And the execution of it, which really hurts futures markets on that early day, um, was really poor. And it was really delayed because of stubborn partisan tactics that were unlike the original bill initiated by the Democrats, but then retorted by the Republicans. The calculation is essentially this, writes Phil Mattingly in CNN. Democrats wanted significant revisions that had been rejected the night prior. 
voting down a procedural motion on Sunday hurts futures markets and causes some Monday morning market issues, but it can quickly be overcome with a final deal. Sunday was the time to make the play to force changes. The window on this is short, however, and Democrats CNN has spoken to know a deal needs to be reached soon. I think you could know that without actually having CNN speak to them, but they have confirmed sources there trying to brag to us commoners. <laughs> anyway, that was their attitude going into that. They needed this bill to be passed if they wanted the market to open strong, which it didn't, uh, and they want they needed it to be passed to put people put, to put food on people's tables. And I think a lot of people felt optimistic on Friday night that they could reach a deal in the early workday on Monday. We're still re- seeing the reality of negotiations happening as I speak right now. For updates on that, you can go to thedortyfiles.com. But this thing is being dragged out because of partisan mischief that's happening on both sides. We'll talk about that, which all relates to the characters in these in this story. There's sort of three protagonists. Talk about all that in one second. But first, I want to tell you that this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast is brought to you by the JDRC Politics Podcast. Haven't talked about that in a while, but if you are looking for hard-hitting, intellectually-based discussions on international politics, listen to the JDRC Politics Podcast. It's co-hosted by me, Jay Doherty, and my good friend Ryan Clark. We have hour-long discussions on what's making the headlines all around the world, and we're returning from our multi-seasonal hiatus to record a couple of episodes before we return to full force in the summer. You can learn more, listen, please listen to these next couple of episodes that we're returning from jdrcpolitics.com or listen in your favorite podcast directory. Okay, so the protagonist in in this fine story is basically uh, Mr. Addison Mitchell McConnell, who also is colloquially referred to as Mitch McConnell. He's the protagonist in the stimulus package story because the only reason really Chuck Schumer is not the protagonist is because... um, Mitch McConnell provided the canvas for Schumer's criticism in this new stimulus package. McConnell was pretty perturbed on Sunday, to put it lightly. I feel like whenever these senators have to come in and negotiate on the weekends, they're just a little bit, their their tempers are a little bit <laughs> flared in my mind. A little bit more angry, and I think that was actually confirmed on Sunday as McConnell squabbled with Schumer on the Senate floor. Here's McConnell delivering his angry plea in response to uh, the Democrat bill, which was presented by Chuck Schumer. Are you kidding me? This is the moment to debate new regulations that have nothing whatsoever to do with this crisis? That's what they're up to over there. Yeah, that's what they're up to. So that is really what Republicans are saying. That's the entire premise of their argument, that they are putting things, they are putting provisions in this bill that have nothing to do with coronavirus and thereby wasting time from, you know, that just could be used to put foods, uh, put food on American tables. And part of that's actually true, in my opinion. Some, there are a lot of things in this proposal that was, you know, seems to be very much presented and, uh, by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, um, there's a lot of problems with and There's also a lot of problems within the Republican bill, as we just addressed, and we'll address that a little bit further in a second. But to put it in simple terms, the entire point of these negotiations are just to show that the respective constituencies of all these elected officials are being represented through the helms of each of their parties in Congress, those helms being here, in this case, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. The Republicans are saying in these endless and really often, like 80% of the time, these negotiations are just purposeless. Uh, but anyway, they're saying that the, the Republicans are saying that the Democrat proposal is just a partisan way to squeeze little unrelated snippets of their biased agenda into a separate stimulus bill. Here's Mitch McConnell 
after reading off a slew of Democrat miscellany in this bill uh, that happens to be in this bill, one of which happens to relate to the Green New Deal. Yeah, so here's Mitch. Tax credits for solar energy and wind energy, provisions to force employers to give special new treatment to big labor. And listen to this, new emission standards for the airlines. Okay, so there, he's saying that they're putting in climate change unrelated nonsense into this bill that has nothing to do with the well-being of Americans with coronavirus. Meanwhile, the Democrats are saying that the Republican proposal focuses too much on bailing out corporate companies, which is totally true, not the average American. Here is Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer presenting his argument. The bill still includes something that most Americans don't want to see. Large corporate bailouts with no almost no strings attached. Maybe the majority leader thinks it's unfair to ask protections for workers and labor to companies that are getting hundreds of billions of dollars. We think it's very fair to ask for those. Those are not extraneous issues. That is a wish list for workers, nobody else. Both of those are actually really valid points. And quite frankly, they could have solved 70% of their problems, in my opinion. They just ditched both of those ideas or maybe just scaled them down a bit in each of their respective bills. Lots of their problems would likely go away if they just simply scaled some things down. Republicans could also just partition, and this would be my solution if I were for some odd reason a Republican or a Democrat. I'm very independent, as if you could not tell that from the statement. Uh, Republicans could also just partition $50 billion or more of their other sector's money, which happens to make up $150 billion. They could partition $50 billion into their taxpayer partition, recognize and reorganize the distribution of money, and then make everyone go home happy. Uh, because they could literally just take $50 billion from other sectors, put it into taxpayer money. But in Washington, seems they'll lose efficiency uh, as a result of stubbornness. In this particular case, I think the Republicans should be more willing to compromise and the Democrats should be less partisan because they're using this sort of to, to add to their yearly spreadsheet of accomplishments when people are literally dying out there. And that seems to be the case in the, I mean, I think the Republicans would do, would do the exact same thing. Whenever someone draws up a bill and you want them to agree with it, they're going to put in little bonus, like, gotchas in the bill. The Republicans could easily say, look, you're right, Chuck. We don't need to be giving a combined $200 billion to bail out corporate companies, a fourth of which is going to a market whose CEO's salary among the top four companies in that industry is more than $11 million per year. Yeah, we'll, we'll just let the Fed keep their interest rates really low, right? So long as Jerry Powell is over there, so that the airline companies can take out ridiculously low low interest rate loans that they'll easily be able to pay back with the money that they we, that we gave to the average Americans who will begin to stimulate the economy and reinitiate the cycle. Because there's... I mean, why, you know, it's really, it's all about trickle-down economics in a way. It's like, why would you give the money to big corporations, or at least, you know, why why would you give uh, such a large percentage of the money to big corporations, hoping that it will, in turn, trickle down, when it, re- when it rarely does, in many cases, I'm not saying all cases, but, you know, why don't you just bypass the trickling? You just give it straight to the Americans, right? Oh, that, that's, a, that's an interesting way of phrasing it, bypass the trickling. Maybe that could be a podcast title for something. I don't know, but 
I just think that's really interesting. If they were to do that, you know, if they were to give more money, partition more money to Americans instead of giving them, you know, maybe five hundred billion, you could do five hundred fifty billion, get the extra fifty billion from the airline money or the other sectors money and still give fifty billion to airline companies and just cut the other sectors money down to a hundred billion. That would make sense in my opinion. I mean, that's what I would be saying if I were an airline company CEO making eleven million dollars per year. Anyway. What I'd be saying if I was a Democrat, what they should do right now is acknowledge that their own distracting shortcomings in their bill with provisions that don't even relate to COVID-19 that instead include a medley of unrelated goals, such as... Tax credits for solar energy and wind energy. Provisions to force employers to give special new treatment to big labor. And listen to this. New emission standards for the airlines. Oh, also, did I mention... The Green New Deal. Yeah, because that's also in there. <laughs> we could talk about specifics all day, but the conclusion, in my opinion, is that there is a common problem, but not a common solution, and that often seems to be the case in Washington and around the world, uh, but there's a common need for a solution, and in order to have a functioning government, you have to be able to compromise so that all three of these boxes are checked. That's what needs to be happening. In other coronavirus news, as seen on our Jay Doherty newsletter, this is normally an exclusive thing that you only see on the newsletter, which you can sign for uh, sign up for at jdoherty.com slash newsletter. Uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul has tested positive for COVID-19. White House advisor Larry Kudlow says that the COVID-19 stimulus package could cost upwards of tr- $2 trillion, not just one. Because, you know, these nego- once these negotiations get done, everything's just doubled. <laughs> Everything seems bigger when you're in Congress, right? Including money. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos released a memo addressing worker safety during COVID-19. You can read it at, G- at thedortyfiles.com. And uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel is in quarantine after contact with COVID-19 positive doctor. Her doctor tested positive for COVID-19. And she was in contact with him, causing her to go into a quarantine. Lots of coronavirus news on this episode, and the stimulus package is really what is what's not being focused on enough. Instead, it's President Trump's response, and the reason I'm saving President Trump's balderdash-filled response for the end of the episode is because I think the stimulus package needs attention, and that's what I'm going to be giving. That's what I just gave to it, but I'm also going to give attention to Trump's response, which is coming up next on episode number 128 of the Jade Rorty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Hey everybody, this is David Axelrod of the Axe Files Podcast, and you're listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast. That's correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. It's episode number 100. And 28 of the Jay Doherty Podcast, Tuesday, March 24th, 2020, 247, as we come back from our little live stream break. Thank you very much for being here. We just finished talking about coronavirus on this podcast, the the legislative side of coronavirus. We will now shift to the executive and less important side of coronavirus, President Trump's response. I define it as useful and useless in that order. Those two terms correspond to not only the definitions of Trump's speech, in my opinion, But uh, the order of the delivery of Trump's speech at the White House yesterday at the press podium, as per usual. We'll begin with the 62 seconds of Trump's pre-written speech 
that happened to prove somewhat utilitarian in the objective updating of information and facts that came from someone that doesn't whose name is not Donald Trump. Here's Donald Trump basically giving an update that is somewhat useful at the White House yesterday. Let me provide you with an update on critical supplies. FEMA is distributing 8 million N95 respirator masks and 13.3 million surgical masks across the country right now. Focusing on the areas with the greatest need, we've shipped 73 pallets of personal protective equipment to New York City and 36 pallets to the state of Washington. In the past 96 hours, FEMA has also received donations of approximately 6.5 million masks. We're having millions and millions of masks made as we speak and other personal protective equipment, which we will be distributing to medical hotspots. We're focused on some of the hotspots. Across the nation, we're seeing an outpouring of creativity and innovative ideas widely shared between the federal health leaders, governors, and mayors, the scientific community, and members of the private sector. Uh, really working together. Everybody's working Okay, so together. that's really where those last three sentences that he said. The difference between the medical community, between the local governments, and the, the private industry. That is where there needs to be a reality check on both sides. The doctors will want to shut down the entire planet for three years in order to completely wipe the virus off the planet. And the economists and people owning and running big companies would have wanted to do nothing about this entire virus. They wouldn't want to shut down anything in the first place, right? Because it's it's a, it's two different areas of expertise. And, and, you know, I mean, it's similar to, like, generals in the military. You know, generals in the military will generally advise you to, you know, be aggressive in your action. Because they want to see the budget that they requested or gear that they requested put into action. And that's understandable. I mean, you're biased towards your own craft, especially when you have facts to back up your argument. And that happens to be the case in medicine right now. And you really don't have too many facts to back up the economy other than the fact that it's doing poorly and that you think or you predict that it will do better because if you lift this ban, people will end up going outside. And that really, I don't think, will happen. There needs to be a balance right now because... When you don't know, um, you know, what argument you want to win in this case, you're doing things to support public health or doing things to revamp the national economy, then you turn to logic. Because if, if you don't know the answer to, to a question, really, you really just cannot figure it out. It's always better to just turn to logic. Go to morality and go to logic. Uh, and generally, those things will coincide. Sometimes they won't. But logic in this case says that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have a livelihood based off of, you know, economics and finances without a life based off of medicine and science. You cannot have the economy without a life, which is why Trump's fiscal, you know, inclinations for the past 71 years to revamp American businesses, which is not entirely shut down, by the way. Lots of the world is still running digitally. I think that that proposition, the thing that he's saying, put the economy first, not the well-being of Americans first, is very dangerous. Point man number one on this entire pandemic has been uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci from the United States perspective. He's the, he's an American immunologist who serves as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and is a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. He's been the guy, we talked about him last week, he, he's been at every single major White House briefing since the beginning of this virus, and I actually said last week that there were really two reliable medical sources in the entire case this entire virus from the United States perspective, and he happens to be one of them. You'll see why I'm saying this uh, is important in just one second. Here's me last week talking about the significance 
of Dr. Anthony Fauci. The the most trustworthy people are uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Deborah Birx. Those have been basically the point people, which is good to know. They seem very talented and knowledgeable about this sort of thing. The concern at this time, however, and that's from episode number 127, is that Fauci, who's been a regular on the podium for the past couple of weeks, has been absent, was absent from the most recent briefing in which Trump was very persistent on pushing away scientific medical advice advice because of his somewhat visceral response to, to make money. <laughs> Here's Trump being asked why Fauci wasn't there and whether or not it was because of disagreements that they both had about the economic reality of this virus. Where is Dr. Fauci right now? Why is he not this briefing? Will, will he attend future ones? Well, and I, just, I was just with him for a long time. And, um, oh, he's at the task force meeting right now. We have a task force what? meeting. He was there. Does, does he agree with you about the need to reopen the economy soon? Well, he doesn't uh, not agree. I mean, we had a long talk. And he understands this tremendous... Uh, there's a tremendous cost to our country. Okay, so what? Uh, <laughs> Pence was standing right next to him. He said, uh, "Dr. Fauci is at the at the task force meeting." Okay, they're they're having a task force meeting while the task force is briefing the country. I don't know. That seems a little bit. Uh, I don't know. I just think that Pence could have come up with a better excuse. I mean, like it's really it's like saying. You know, you're at a graduation ceremony and you say someone's in the classroom and you perfectly accept that. I mean, that's what they did to Fauci. And a lot of that, in my opinion, is because of disagreements that Trump and Fauci have been having. I think Trump and Fauci really don't get too long, get along too well behind the scenes. I mean, Trump claims otherwise, but I think Trump's overriding inclination to narcissistically, narcissistically interject his opinions over facts, particularly in this case, and also Fauci you know, probably just being candid about what could happen if we don't slow down America or, you know, for a week or try to recover from this virus, it could be very dangerous. And I think that's really the the cause of this. They don't like each other because they disagree fundamentally. Trump is a business guy, not ethically, I might add. Fauci is an ethical medical man. In fact, USA Today reported that his whereabouts, meaning Fauci's, have become a point of interest since he gave a remarkably candid interview to Science Magazine published Sunday evening, that's a day before Trump kicked him off the podium, in which he admitted being at odds with Trump over several issues. And because Fauci has, for many Americans, provided a reassuring rational voice as the coronavirus pandemic upended their lives. Fauci said in the Science Magazine interview that, quote, even though we, meaning him and President Trump, disagree on some things, he listens. He goes his own way. He has his own style. I think that's a really nice way of putting something that's not so nice, but that's what Fauci says. And I think the reason that Fauci's absence generally and holistically is worrisome is because uh, it symbolically shows that Trump is uh, growing to to have disregard for medical professionals, professionals on the stage right now. I mean, Barr was up there today. Uh, Burks is maintained up there. She's the other trustworthy medical official on the coronavirus task force. But Trump is just growing in his sort of uh, disregard for the medical professionals of this country and the medical professionals that are helping him through this medical crisis that has in turn spurred an economic crisis that can certainly 
uh, be resurrected, but what cannot be resurrected is American lives. And Trump has actually put that in print. In fact, on nine, at 9.16 a.m. this morning, he tweeted out, quote, our people want to return to work. They will practice social distancing and all else, and seniors will be watched over protectively and lovingly. We can do two things together. The cure cannot be worse than the problem. Congress must act now. We will come back strong. Okay, so every <laughs> every sentence that he has right there, is unrelated in my opinion. He tries to relate everything together, and it's really unclear in my in my humble opinion. But he says, "Our people want to return to work. Period. They will practice social distancing and all else, and seniors will be watched over protectively and lovingly. Period. We can do these two things together. Period. So, okay, that makes sense, sort of. I mean, one of those sentences could be taken out of context and put into the th the stuff we're doing right now. I mean, I'm talking about the second sentence where he says, they will practice social distancing and all else, and seniors will be watched over protectively and lovingly. He could they, that, that can still apply under the rules that states have imposed right now. But how he phrases this, the cure can uh, cannot be worse than the problem. Congress must act now. It's sort of like totally... Uh, drifting from your thesis of this tweet in a way because he says our people want to return to work period congress must act now period well congress does not have the authority to determine whether or not people will return to work or not they have the authority to stimulate people's personal bank accounts on you know whatever scale they recommend or whatever scale they vote into law so I don't know what exactly he means by these tweets. One could discern the best or one could discern the worst. And that seems to be really the case with all of Trump's speech and the rhetoric that he frequently deploys onto this planet. And also, you have to remember that unless he institutes some sort of national lockdown, he really does not have much control compared to what governors and state and local uh, governments have, you know, over... Uh, the territories of the United States, basically. I mean, the governor, governors have incredible amount of power when it comes to these sorts of things. And the federal uh, governments cannot override that. So I'm not sure exactly what he means when, I mean, is he just, you know, outlining his utopian vision of something? Or is he, like, actually planning to act on this in some sort of legislative way? And if so, in what way? That's really the question. Anyway, you could just go on and on and on about the the abstractness of Trump's tweets. What you can also go on and on about is the absurdity of how Trump's talks at the podium. He, I mean, okay, so just keep in mind here the context. Millions of people around the world have been laid off. Tens of thousands of Americans have lost their jobs. The economy is basically tanking. Everything seems horrible right now. It'll be hopeful. We'll get through it and everything. But, but, it's a horrible state, probably the worst in his entire presidency right now. And Trump goes up to the podium and talks and complains about how it cost him billions of dollars to be the president of the United States, while millions of Americans are losing jobs and the nation faces probably the biggest risk that it's faced in modern history next to like World War II. Uh, and, and, and he's talking about how he's complaining about how it cost him billions of dollars to run for president. And then also comparing himself to boost his ego to his other quote-unquote rich friends. Here's Trump at the podium yesterday talking about uh, how he uh, spent billions after a reporter asked him whether or not he sold his own stocks, to which he replied he did not have stocks, and instead owns properties, like the average American does, of course. And here's Trump just saying that, you know, 
It cost, it cost me billions, okay? It cost me billions. You know, it's very interesting that you ask a question like that. You know, nasty question, and yet it deserves to be asked, I guess. What I've done by uh, deciding to run, and I knew this. I knew this the first day. I said, if I win, it's going to cost a lot of money. It cost me billions of dollars to become president, to, to be president of the United States. I knew this would happen. I knew it was going to happen. But the fact that I ran, and I knew as soon as I announced, when I ran, I said, it's going to cost me a fortune, not only in terms of actual costs. Look at my legal costs. You people, everybody, everybody is suing me. I'm being sued by people that I never even heard of. I'm being sued all over the place and doing very well, but it's unfair. But I'll say this, in terms of running for president, and I don't think rich people, Michael Bloomberg spent now is determined almost a billion dollars, and look what happened. I think it's very hard for rich people to run for office. Oh, very it's, relatable uh, there, Mr. President. It's far more costly. It's, it's just a, uh, it's a very tough thing. Now, with all of that being said, I'm so glad I've done it, because, you know, there are a lot of rich people around, got a lot of rich friends, but they can't help and they can't do what I've done in terms of helping this country. We are we are doing things. We got sidetracked by the invisible air. Okay, and then he goes on and banters and banters and banters. But, I mean, literally he said, I'm very glad that I've done it because a lot of my rich friends aren't doing as much as, the, as I'm doing. That's the reason you ran for president? Oh, my God. It's just ridiculous. It, it really is. And people are literally struggling out there very seriously. And Trump is out there complaining about how... You know, it cost him billions to run for president. Like, just, just absurd, to say the least. Very dangerous times we live in. It'll get better. I think it will. It just takes time. I think this thing will be swiftly, swiftly uh, taken care of, I, I hope, and I think, and uh, I believe. So, that's what we'll be looking for. We'll continue coverage of COVID-19 some news that you really probably haven't heard of, and I'm not going to be talking about it on this episode because we're at about 50 minutes right now, but the 2020 race has been just totally sidelined as a result of COVID-19. Joe Biden continues to lead, and there's also been a few primaries, and that's probably the reason why, but the question is, what what's going to happen to primaries? What's going to happen to the general election? Will the pushback of primaries be so dramatic that the general election is delayed? Or maybe just shorter gap in between the original date. Who knows? Maybe. We'll probably talk about that this week on the JDRC Politics Podcast, so make sure you listen because that is going to be very valuable to me, and I'd really appreciate it if you are a listener of this podcast and you want to hear more content like it on the JD Media Network, go to jdrcpolitics.com, and you can also subscribe in your favorite podcast directory if you so wish. Once again, that's jdrcpolitics.com. Dot com. The phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive emails and newsletter updates every week at j-dorty.com slash newsletter. See show notes and episode highlights at j-dorty.com. Clips and highlights at thedortyfiles.com. This has been a JD Media Network production. Thanks for listening. The J. Dorty Podcast.
podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by Jay Doherty. The Jay Doherty Podcast is recorded in the studios of the JD Media Network. The Jay Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the Jay Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com. Thank you.